The title of our sermon this morning is The Secret. And our key words for our worshipers in training are secret, content, and want. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 982. I'm going to share a little church history with you this morning. From 1547 to 1553, King Edward VI reigned in England. It was just six years. And during that time, Edward appointed a man by the name of Nicholas Ridley to be the Bishop of London. And as the Bishop, Ridley was able to do much for the advancement of the Reformation in England during that time. He also worked very closely with uh, a name some of you may be familiar with, who was Archbishop Thomas Cranmer at the time. He was one of the greatest reformers of the English church. Well, the people loved Ridley because of his care for the sick and for the poor. He had several hospitals built in London, and he went there to minister to the people. During that same time period, there was another man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Latimer was a Catholic priest. He was later converted and became very zealous for the advance of the Reformation. He was appointed in 1525 to be a new bishop in, in Worcester. He had a large congregation to serve. He was very enthusiastic in his work. He was a great preacher. He visited people. He was refuting wrong teaching at the time. Latimer, though, gave up his position in 1539 because he realized he could not agree with all that was going on in the church and all the doctrines and rules and practices that he was being held to. His desire was to live quietly in the country and to study the Scriptures. But God had a different plan. There was a large storm, and during that storm, a tree fell on Latimer, and it hurt him very badly. And so he needed to go to London to see a doctor. When he got to London, his enemies soon discovered that he was there and quickly brought exaggerated charges against him. This resulted in his imprisonment in the Tower of London. He remained in the Tower of London for six years until King Henry died. He was released in 1547 when Edward VI became king. He accepted an invitation from Cranmer to help him in his work as archbishop once again, so he moved to Lambeth. So for six years of his life, he assisted Cranmer. People came to tell him their troubles. Uh, He was a faithful biblical counselor. He became so well known for his kindness and his ability to help the poor. People came from all over England just to see him. So these two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were faithful ministers of the Reformation under the rule of Edward VI. He was a Protestant. He was very friendly to the cause of the Reformation. However, when Henry died, Ridley was part of a plot to ensure that Lady Jane Grey would take the throne instead of Queen Mary simply because Lady Jane Grey was a Protestant, Mary was a Catholic. But Mary became queen, and so she had Ridley thrown into prison. And for Latimer, Queen Mary had begun uh, persecuting all the Protestants, and he knew that he was in danger. She sent message to summon him to come to London, having decided that he should be burned at the stake. He was thrown into the Tower of London with Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and John Bradford. This is where the two met. And there, Ridley had become so frail, he spent much of his time praying, and at times he could not get up on his feet without the assistance of others. 
On October 16, 1555, Ridley and Latimer were led from the Tower of London to a nearby site. And when they reached the site, Ridley embraced Latimer in a hug, and he said, Be of good cheer, Brother Latimer, for God will either lessen the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to bear them. Many of the citizens of Oxford came out to watch that day. They all knelt down and they prayed. Someone came and they preached a sermon and urged the prisoners to repent and return to the Holy Church, thus saving their lives and their souls. Ridley asked for permission to speak, but some of the men ran toward him and covered his mouth with their hands and said, you only have liberty to speak if you recant. So long as there is breath in my body, Ridley said, I will never deny the Lord and His known truth. God's will be done to me. And with a loud voice, he added, I commit our cause to Almighty God, who shall impartially judge all. Latimer then requested permission to speak. He also was denied. And when the men were stripped of almost all of their clothing, Ridley prayed, I beseech thee, Lord, have mercy upon the realm of England and deliver the land from her enemies. An iron chain was then locked around their waists. Ridley's brother tied a bag of gunpowder around their necks. When a lighted torch was laid to the wood, Latimer said to his friend, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Fox wrote in his book of martyrs, as hundreds of bystanders looked on as these two motionless bodies, all that could be heard was weeping. Now, I don't know about you, but as I think about that story And as I've read about it in history books, my thought is, how can it be that anyone could be of that kind of heart to say those kinds of things while they're being engulfed in flames? It puts things into perspective a bit, doesn't it? You may be sitting here this morning thinking about your own life, thinking about tomorrow, thinking about some ways you may have to confront your boss or you have a pile of work on your desk that you haven't wanted to get to, or bills piling up at home, or the reality of fighting sin in your own life. But then we think about all those things, and then we see people filled with the Holy Spirit. And they've lived by what we will see in the text this morning. They live by a secret, a secret that's revealed to us, a secret that can be known. And it answers this question, how can I face the reality of life in such a way that I look at no matter what my circumstances are, that I may say, come whatever comes, let me burn like a candle so bright for the Lord that it will never be put out. And what we find here in the text this morning is that this isn't something that's achieved by sleeping on a bed of nails or achieving some kind of high or nirvana or fasting and praying on a mountain in seclusion for 30 years. No, it's something available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. It's a secret of contentment. And not only is it a secret revealed in the Bible, it's also a command to be followed. 
So we're going to look at our verses this morning, and we're going to see the very secret, the very secret that allowed men like Latimer and Ridley to face their death in the way that they did, because they were content in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to think about this in the context of the Tenth Commandment, because that's really what's going on in the Tenth Commandment, is we're being commanded to be content. So we're going to think about these two parts of Scripture this morning. So let's read Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, before we jump into the text, I want us to think about the Tenth Commandment. You know what the Tenth Commandment is from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So what is coveting? Coveting is this inner longing. It is a a grasping for something on the inside that's not yours or that you can't have or that you don't think that you can live without. It's, It's saying about whatever that thing is, I have to have it or I'm going to feel empty. And that's not just material things. Notice from Exodus, it's not just about stuff, but it can be about relationships. It can be a status that we want to achieve. And so maybe in your heart you say something like, if my husband was just more attentive and affectionate, and if my kids were just more obedient. Men, maybe it could be something like, if I could just get the respect I deserve at work, some of these things we discussed in Sunday school this morning. If I were just better at my hobbies so others would look at me more admirably. And so what this commandment is saying is stop trying to feel something different. Stop trying to get this emptiness out and this longing and desire fulfilled with people and with things because they're not going to get it for you. You need to find your contentment in the right place. And people and things are not the right place. Don't covet because even if you get what you think you need, it's not going to fulfill you. So we'll keep that in mind as we walk through this text this morning. All of this tied back to the Tenth Commandment. Well, the first thing we see, though, is in verse 10. And that is that Christians should be concerned for the good of one another. Look again at verse 10. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now remember, Paul is in prison as he is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. Undoubtedly, this was his favorite of all of the churches that he had planted. And it was the healthiest of the churches at the time. You'll recall that the church sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul as he was in prison. 
He brought a monetary gift to meet some of his needs. Those weren't provided for him in prison in that day. If you had needs to be fulfilled, they had to be fulfilled by others. So the Philippian church took up that cause, and they sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. And the picture we get from Paul and what he says here is that Epaphroditus shows up with this gift from the church, and Paul was instantly filled with rejoicing. He saw their generosity. He saw their support. He saw their willingness to care for and love him, and it was just overwhelming to him. Have you ever been the recipient of something that came to you as a result of someone else's overwhelming generosity. It leaves you nearly speechless sometimes. You don't know what to say. You may not know how to say it. You can, you're, you're just so thankful. You're so taken aback. Maybe all you can simply say is, is thank you. It's amazing to you that someone else would think so highly of you, would, would think to be so kind and so loving towards you. And this is the kind of love and generosity that the church was showing to Paul. But it's beyond the gift. It's beyond even Epaphroditus showing up to deliver the gift. It's also an indication to Paul that the Philippians continued to be a healthy church. Unhealthy churches don't think about other people. They're not outwardly focused. They're not caring for the needs of other saints or thinking about the church more broadly. They're turned in on themselves. If a church isn't doing missions, if a church isn't concerned about missions or church planting or the the needs of other, other believers in other places, you can be certain that's not a healthy church. And so Paul has Epaphroditus show up, and it's this overwhelming feeling of gratitude that he has because they thought of him, because they gave to him, because they loved him, and because it's an indication to him that the church continues to flourish and be healthy and grow as a faithful body of believers. Now, no doubt, on a daily basis, Paul was concerned for all of the churches that he had planted. He was praying for the churches, for the believers, for the pastors, the deacons, praying for the health of each body. It was so deep in his heart, this concern was not departing from him. And all of a sudden, he gets word. He gets a messenger. And that messenger brings a gift. And he says that he rejoiced in the Lord. In other words, he was was thankful to God for this renewed concern for his plight and for his needs. And at the first opportunity that they had, they met those needs. They sent word of their health. They sent word of their concern, and his heart was made so glad. There was no question here that they cared for Paul, and and he wanted to make sure that they knew he was aware of his love for them. Now, this is a great call to the church. Are we loving one another in this way? Are we loving the body of Christ? Not, Not just here, not just in this local church, but the church outside of here, the people of God around the world. How are we loving them? At the very least, we ought to be praying for them. When needs arise, we should do what we can to provide for them. We should minister to others as we are able. We should encourage others. We should give of our resources as the Lord blesses those efforts. Others know what the love of God is through His people, and and we, we learn the joy of giving. And in turn, the Lord blesses us in our times of need, in our times of heartbreak and brokenness and trials, as the church, as God's people minister to one another. So Paul was very thankful for the church at Philippi as they were fulfilling this calling to love their brother and to care for his needs. 
Well, the second thing we see in verses 11 and 12 is that Christians can learn how to be content in every circumstance. Now, the reason the Tenth Commandment is important in all of this is because if we live in such a way that we're not coveting, we're going to be finding our contentment, not in the things that the flesh desires, but in God Himself. So you see how not coveting and being content go hand in hand. It's actually the Tenth Commandment that Paul says in Romans 7 helped him to understand his absolute need for Christ. Remember, Paul wrote, I was alive apart from the law. That means I felt good about myself. I thought that I had a good thing going. I thought I was being very godly. And he says, until the commandment came, thou shalt not covet. Then sin revived and I died. The commandment slew me. I thought I was a godly person until one day I was meditating on the, co- on the commandment that says do not covet. And I began to realize what that actually means. It says a godly person will love God enough so that nothing else is necessary. So that he will be content in every circumstance, in plenty and in want. And I wasn't like that. And it convicted me. Now, I don't know where you are this morning, but I hope you realize that you're nowhere near where the Bible commands. None of us are. The Bible is saying God created you. You owe Him everything. And it's the most natural thing in the world for God to ask you to love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's the most natural thing. Why? Because number one, you owe it to Him. Nobody would say that it's unjust, but but practically... You need to love Him so no other thing will dominate your life. These other little things that you have that you covet, that you, that you grasp after, which will never be in proportion to what you want them to be. So you're always going to be running around in a state of discontentment. It's absolutely natural for God to say, love me with all that you are. Because despite what we sometimes want to think, God really does want His best for us. And He knows that the greatest gift, the greatest treasure, the greatest thing that God can give us to delight in and find our hope in and contentment and satisfaction in is Himself. Nothing else measured up to God Himself. So when we realize where the end of coveting is and the beginning of contentment is, we can begin with Paul to say what he says here. I have learned the secret of being content in all things. And the beautiful thing about what what Paul is doing here is that he tells us exactly what that looks like. It's a secret that's revealed to us. It's, It's not hidden anymore. A secret by nature, though, is something that not everyone knows, right? It's something that people want to know. So it's interesting that he uses that word. But really, if you think about your own life apart from Christ, or maybe as a Christian, if you think about the lives of those you know who don't know Christ, this idea of contentment is a big secret, isn't it? Seeking for it in every way and never quite finding it. So it's interesting that he uses that word, but he's pointing to a reality 
that all of us really know. We live in a fantasy world where we have some sense that we're on the verge, we're always right on the cusp of finding contentment when, when we get that thing that we're wanting. Maybe it's a new friend or a new vacation or starting a new job or moving to a new city or falling in love again. And, and when that happens, there's this sense that this is going to be it. This is the fulfillment I've wanted. But what happens with that? C.S. Lewis wrote this, he said, When you stand before a landscape which seems to embody what you've been looking for all your life, in your hobbies, the secret attraction, often on the verge of breaking through the scent of cut wood in the workshop or the clap-clap of water against the boat's side, you have never had it. But if it should ever become manifest, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It's the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. Here's what he's saying. There's this longing for something beautiful, something true, something gorgeous, something satisfying in life, but we can never quite remember exactly what it is. It's being aroused with longing for something we can never quite remember what it is. When we get near an object that brings us to it, we realize almost instantly that it's not going to satisfy the longings that we have. Why? Because contentment is a secret. It's something we know about, but we don't really know how to get it. It's something we feel, but we don't know what the key is. All human beings realize this. And once you realize that it's a secret, or even if you don't realize it, the fact breaks the human race into really three different groups of people. Everybody in this room is, one of, is in one of these three groups. Figure out where you are. The first group is people who simply decide that the objects that are arousing this desire must be those things which will satisfy that desire. And so you just assume, and it's a logical assumption, that the things around you that arouse your desire are the things that you need in order to be content. So they must seek to satisfy that desire. For example, in the commandment, thou shalt not covet, you have three basic categories. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's house. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't cover your neighbor's possessions. First John deals with these things too. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's these things that have destroyed many people, many careers, many ministries, because we're chasing after them, and when we get them, they don't hold up. I often warn young men in ministry that any of these three things will kill them. Gold, girls, or glory. And that can easily apply to women, gold, guys, or glory. If your main focus in life is in obtaining one of those three things above everything else, and you're thinking that that's what's going to satisfy your longing, they will destroy you. None of those things are adequate gods. And so the first person continues to pursue those things. It's very much an attitude of hedonism, an attitude of I need more stuff, I need more things, I need more relationships, and once I have the right amount, it's going to fulfill me. But at one time, the richest man in the world was asked, how much more do you need? And he said, a little bit more, just a little bit more. It's never going to be enough. What's the second kind of person? The second kind of person is someone who's sort of decided to stop building their life on anything at all. 
They begin to realize after a few failed relationships or businesses, they say, why am I so unhappy? And so they go into this state of self-analysis and they say, yes, I built my life on all of these things. I realize that I thought these objects were going to bring me happiness and I can't do it, so I'm not going to do it anymore. And in that moment, they feel, they feel happy because they've realized that I'm just going to stop. But the problem with stopping at self-analysis is that it can only show you the problem. And maybe you assess the problem accurately, but it never gives you the solution. It never reveals the secret to contentment. What happens to you when you are in the second category? You look around and you say, yes, I've been worshiping things. I've been worshiping a status. I've been worshiping a certain uh, value in my life that I want. But they're too small. I'm not going to do it anymore. And so you build your life on nothing. You become cynical. You become hard. At least you're not being disappointed anymore because you just don't care. At least now you're just down here and you stay down. You're probably less of a nuisance to your friends and to your relatives. You're probably less of a nuisance to yourself, but you're not in a healthy place at all. And then there's a third category of people. And this is how C.S. Lewis reasons through this question of contentment. And I, I love this so much. He writes this. He says, I get hungry in my stomach and I look around and my goodness, there's food. A little baby duckling wants to swim and sure enough, there's such a thing as water. If there are desires in you that nothing on earth can fulfill, it means you were built for something else. You need to get beyond yourself. You need to get beyond what is here and what you can touch and taste. Listen, as nice as relationships and friendships are, as important as they are, as nice as money is to have, as nice as comfort is, as nice as all of these things are, they are just icing on the cake. But you can't just live on icing. It is really good. It's very good, Marcina. Icing is fantastic. <laughs> if you eat too much of it, though, you will get fat, you will get lazy, and it will kill you. So the third kind of person says, I have learned the secret of being content. I will love God with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so here's the deal. The secret of contentment that Paul is pointing to so that we're not coveting is not for people who nibble around the edges and live in the suburbs of Christianity, but those people who are willing to go downtown. It's for people who are, are really going to take seriously the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your being, putting Christ at the center of your life. And then and only then can you begin to know what it means not to covet and what it means to be content, to be full, to be satisfied, not, not physically, but, but spiritually in your soul. Notice what Paul points to. He says, being brought low and abounding. He says, in every circumstance. So it's not about having a, a nice house, two new cars, two and a half kids, a dog, a steak dinner, and whatever else, to be content. No, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to being Content to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment. The secret here is the ability to say, God, you are enough. I love you. 
And it's, it's to your honor that I want to live, not the acclaim of others. It's, it's your attention that I seek, not the attention of the world. And, and so, depending where we are with this depends on what's going to happen if we're ever hauled off, burned at the stake. Are we going to be at a place of contentment where we can say, play the man, brother. We shall light a candle this day that can never be put out. Or are you thinking, no, I can't, I can't go. I cannot go. I have a business to run. I have children to raise. I have a family to care for. I have people that depend on me. I, I, I haven't met all of my goals. I, I can't go right now. Look, all of these things are good, they're important, they deserve our time and attention and resources, but if all of it goes away tomorrow, can we still say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? That's true contentment. Now listen, I'm going to be really honest with you. In myself right now, in just saying that, that's hard. I can't do that on my own. And if you say that you can, I don't trust you because you think too highly of yourself. We need to think about the final thing that Paul says in verse 13 to really figure out how this works out in our lives. Our final point this morning, verse 13, Christians can rely on the strength of Christ to provide for every need. A Christian is somebody who, on the one hand, has a new self-image and a new attitude toward himself or herself and a new attitude toward God. Now, this verse is so often used out of context for people who want to claim that Jesus is helping them win a basketball game that they didn't practice for or, um, or to do well in their job interview for, <laughs> that they're not qualified for or to pass the test they didn't study for. That's not what this verse is about. I want to say, you can do all things through Christ, but can you please use this verse in context? <laughs> What what this is really about is that no matter what your situation is in life, in Christ, we can be content. How different our lives could be if we were more readily relying upon the strength that God has given us to quit worrying about our felt needs and to find our contentment in Him. What a joy it would be to come to a place in our lives together where we, we know that we can trust in Christ to provide for us, where we can rest in the strength for any and all things that he provides. So Paul is teaching us about having the strength to be content when we're facing all of these moments in our life when physical resources are minimal. This is about having faith in a God who provides the God who providentially works in every aspect of our lives and has designed all of the circumstances for His ends, the God who sees and knows our needs and has promised to meet all of them in Jesus Christ. So the next time you're tempted to go down that path of saying, I just need to get a raise at work, and then that you'll stop yourself and say, it's a smokescreen. Be content in what you have right now. When those feelings arise in my heart, we're saying, I deserve better. But who are we blaming when we say, I deserve better? We're only blaming God. So in Christ, we must be reminded, no, in fact, you don't deserve better than your current circumstances. You deserve far worse. Christ is your portion. He is far more than anything you could hope or imagine. 
You need to be preaching to yourself when it comes to contentment. I sure know I, I, sure know I need to preach to myself about contentment because in and of myself, I will never be content. I need the strength that Christ supplies in order to do that. So when I'm tempted to discontentment, what should I do? A few final thoughts. How do we work this out? The first thing we need to do is stop. Recognize discontentment. The first thing we need to do is just stop what we're doing. It sounds easy enough, but we just need to know that when things are brewing in our hearts and we're growing discontent because we don't have what we think we need, we need to stop grumbling and complaining, stop sulking and stomping around the house because we're not getting treated the way we think we should be treated. We need to stop the harsh and critical words toward others who who aren't behaving the way we demand of them. We need to stop the silent treatment of everyone around us because we want to force them to be what we want them to be. We need to stop and ask, what is the source of my discontentment right now? Am I making other people to be in a place where they ought not to be in my life? That they're supposed to provide something for me that they were never intended to provide? Where is my discontentment? Is it Pinterest? Is it Facebook? Is it mommy blogs or the golf channel or job postings on the internet? Whatever it is, stop going there all of the time and feeding your discontentment. And then you need to look. See what you're looking at. You're discontent because you perceive an obstacle between you and whatever the prize is that you think that you want. Name that prize, and it's likely that it's probably, in the midst of discontentment, it's probably not Jesus. Now, can our longings and desires be good and useful? Yes, absolutely. If we are continuously burdened by our job, it's not necessarily wrong that we would want to find another type of work or that we would get higher pay or have a better schedule or something along those lines. That's not a bad thing. However, how does that longing affect what I'm doing currently? Is it making me discontent in the circumstances that I'm living in right now? Am I coveting something that I don't have and maybe never will have? And as a result, is my ability to rightly do what I'm called to do right here and now being affected? (coughs) Be honest with yourself. Our desires can lead us in new directions sometimes, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. However, we have to be very diligent to make sure that we stay focused on what the Lord has called us to do right here and right now, and that our motives remain on glorifying the Lord. We need to think. We need to regain proper focus on the prize that only comes through right thinking, what we ponder and what we perceive. Remember what Paul instructed as we looked earlier in chapter 4. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We need to reorient our thinking. And then we need to repent as God continues to sanctify us. The Holy Spirit reveals areas of sin. Addressing an outward action of sin is only a temporary measure. We need to dig down to the root issue that's embedded in our hearts. So often the root of our sin in our lives is discontentment. And so in prayer, we need to ask God by the Holy Spirit to not only convict us of sin and give us the power to repent, but also to stay our hearts on Jesus, the only true source of contentment. 
and we need to practice gratitude. Praying prayers of thanksgiving before the Lord each and every day. When all of your world seems to be crashing down around you, do you spend time first meditating on and thanking God for all of the great and wonderful provisions in your life before asking Him to move mountains for you? Our hearts are so prone to hardness. We need to keep them soft by remembering the true source of every good and perfect gift. And we need to see life through the life-altering reality of the gospel. When we're discontent, we forget that through Christ we've received the greatest blessing of all. Because of Jesus' perfect life, sinner's death, burial, and glorious resurrection, as a child of God, my existence isn't temporary but eternal. I need a reminder that because Jesus died in my place, that my joy and my contentment cannot be wrapped up in this world and my circumstances because I was made for another world. It's not possible to have my heart satisfied by the things of this world. They were never intended to do that. So don't lose sight of eternity. If we do, we're giving up, we're giving in, we're settling for something far less than what we were designed for. And friends, there are some of you here today who know nothing of life other than discontentment. And if you're a Christian, I hope that God's Word's really challenging you today, and the the Holy Spirit will bring you to a place of of conviction that you would start living upon God instead of living upon uh, these things that you think you need in the world to bring contentment. The secret is to let all of that go and to look to Christ. But there are those of you here this morning who will never know contentment because you live in life in opposition to God, completely rejecting Christ. And until you recognize that the secret to contentment that you are longing for in your heart, until you realize that's only found in Christ, all of the circumstances of your life are going to dictate how you feel, what you do, and where you go. You will be bitter and angry. You will alienate yourself from others and find it impossible to reconcile with them. You will never find satisfaction in your work. Your joy, your peace will be elusive. You will live for tomorrow, but you'll eventually learn that tomorrow never comes. And so I'm pleading with you this morning to look to Jesus Christ, because He is the secret to contentment. So let's confess with the Apostle Paul, Can this truly be what we say of Christ? What then shall we say to all the things in this world? If God is for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, what circumstances in this life can really stand against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Do you face trials? Do you face enemies? Do you face death? Are you being falsely accused? Are you being dragged off in persecution to be burned at the stake? God is the the judge and the justifier. Christ is interceding for you. God loves you and has rescued you from darkness, bringing you into the glorious light. 
What should we fear? What can make us anxious? How can we be discontent? In all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we be content in that? That's the secret to look to the promise of what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel and to find our contentment in Him and Him alone before we look anywhere else.